Shut up and sit down. everyone welcome back to a new edition of the limited upside podcast i'm mike prada uh we've staged a coup and ben epstein is gone for good so it's just me from now on Nah, i'm just kidding he'll be back next time in his place we have a special guest on the line uh he he is newly with the norman transcript out in oklahoma covering the oklahoma city thunder it's fred katz fred how you doing i'm good how about you I'm doing okay. I must say, we have to get this out of the way because I'm still laughing at this. You kind of were yeah, made—you kind of were made into a little bit of an internet meme last night. Uh, you know, you're asking a question in the press conference that's televised on NBA TV, and you—you you have to kind of state your name and affiliation, and you state your name, and then rather than addressing Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, you kind of have this verbal tick where you say, "You address yourself." You say. So Fred, Fred Katz, Norman Transcript. So Fred, and then you ask your question, and you know Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook kind of give you this this weird look, and then you kind of catch yourself. What can you take me through what that was like? Yeah, well, for, like you said, for, the, for those who don't know, in those press conference settings, you're supposed to say your name and your affiliation. So you, know, you start your question. In my case, Fred Katz, Norman Transcript, and then you go into your question. And uh, I, I sometimes you don't have to do it, and, and sometimes I'll just I'll just forget that I'm supposed to start off that way. And that kind of happened last night. And then uh, once once I did that, I I just kind of said my name to Kevin Durant, and stumbled <laughs> up my words. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm becoming pretty good at getting memes by Russell Westbrook. So. Oh, that's so I right. That that's right. There was another incident I forgot where he. What exactly did he do? He kind of stared at you. I, Russ, Russ, Russ kind of cut off a question I asked him when I, I also stumbled over my words and, and said, say what, my man? And, oh, that's and right, then, yes. And then it turned into a whole, a whole internet-y type of thing. Well, welcome to the beat. Wow, that's uh, that's some pretty harsh treatment on your first <laughs> two weeks. Is it two weeks, one week, uh, whatever it is on the beat? Now, I, I have to rush your defense a little bit because I don't think what people fully get is that, you know, there's like kind of an art in crafting a question you know, you have to kind of word it in the right way to, you know, sort of get not the answer necessarily you want, but just kind of the subject you want. You know, I had a journalism professor that used to refer to this stuff as exit ramps, where, you know, if you say a certain word a certain way, you know, the they're gonna the subject is always gonna find kind of the most convenient way to ask to answer the question. And so if you say a word like it the wrong way or you phrase it the wrong way, it may kind of generate sort of you're not really you cover a different topic than what you're supposed to. So you're kind of thinking in your head, right? Like, okay, this is the question I've got to ask. And then when you're thinking of one thing, it's uh, it's hard to concentrate on another and then just something like that happens. Yeah, that's that's essentially what happens. I mean, I think most people aren't referring to others by by their own name, but you know, I guess starting I guess I'm starting something new anyway. Yeah, it's just it's it's difficult. It's a whole lot harder than it looks. I mean, it's also plus they kind of have those two like looming on a on a podium above you, and it's both of them together, and I think they're trying to convey a certain image, and it's not so easy. No, it's you know it's it's fine. I've done it a hundred times before. I'll do it a hundred times again. Uh, and you know it was funny. The memes are funny. I've gotten so many texts back. Like it's it's ridiculous because I guess TNT cut into it right as 
right as I went on. Oh, did uh, they? I didn't even know that. that. Yeah, oh, no. I think that's what happened. Like, it was like the first question when they got inside the NBA. And uh, I, my Twitter notification just, like, shot up as soon as it happened. And I've gotten, I've gotten so many texts just from friends, and my brother is just absolutely loving it. So <laughs> as long as I can bring some joy to some people that I love, I guess that's okay. What's the worst thing you've, you've gotten, or, like, the funniest response you've gotten? I thought Zach Harper's uh, Photoshop was pretty hilarious. Zach Harper photoshopped uh, me me interviewing myself in an interview room. So <laughs> guys, <laughs> Zach Harper, our mutual friend from CBS, I thought yeah. I thought that was pretty hilarious. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, so anyway, hang in there. Do, do I assume by now, like Kevin and Russ, kind of know who you are? You've been there a couple weeks. You're there all the time. Uh, so they can kind of – that's something that they'll forgive you for, and it's no big deal. I assume that's the case. Well, they certainly know who I am now. <laughs> they didn't before. They, I know they do now. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was – look, it's a whole, it was a really funny moment. I, I think it's – I really like that you're kind of laughing yourself at it. I think it's – it'd be embarrassing. I know if I had to go through that. I've had – everybody in the kind of field has sort of been popped where you kind of stumble over a question over Greg Popovich, and so there's always a horror story. But, like, what, what makes this different is that everybody's watching. It's on TV. You know, normally you kind of just stumble in a scrum and, you know, nobody's really recording it. It's no big deal. As you, unfortunately, have now had two moments that have been publicly broadcasted. Yep. Great, great time, Mike. That, that's just what I needed. That's exactly <laughs> what, I, that, All right. that's what I was hoping to hear. All right, well, let's move on. I think we've embarrassed you enough. The internet has embarrassed you enough. You're in the. You kind of got thrust in the middle of a pretty damn good series. I mean, one of the best series I've had, and I would say a surprising series. You know, I, I'm very. I think that ending kind of stunned a lot of people. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's been it's been an unbelievable series. Obviously, say for game one, um, I think it's been a particularly well played series for the most part too. I mean, I think if we're if we're comparing kind of Spurs series in recent history by my favorite was that seven-gamer against the Clippers last year. I thought that was just so well-played on both sides. Yeah. And maybe that changes as we move forward this one because that came down to a buzzer beater in game seven Chris Paul, which is, which is really hard to forget. I think that's the only buzzer beater that's ever happened in a game seven to get the final second of the buzzer. So, right. Um, that's that, that hard to beat. But, but this series has been, I think, really well-played. You know, Lord knows how many Hall of Famers you have in it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I thought – I picked Spurs in seven. I did think it was going to be a series. I thought the Thunder just had a lot of talent, a lot of athleticism. Westbrook would win a game, which has happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Durant would win a game, which has happened, and the Thunder would kind of find a way to piece together a win on their own the other time, uh, which which also happened. Uh, But I I wasn't sure that they would be going home to game six with a chance to close out the series. I think that's that's really the surprise thing. Yeah, and also winning twice on the Spurs' home court, which is two times more two times as often as anyone in the regular season won on the Spurs home court. I thought this would be a quick series. I thought Spurs would win in five. That's dead wrong. And the biggest reason it's turned out to be dead wrong is that Oklahoma City's defense was kind of up and down all year. In this series, it's been, since game one, it's been absolutely on, you know, on point. It's kind of jarring how hard it is for the Spurs to score even when they do. I mean, that's the thing that stuns me the most. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Thunder are, are moving really well. I think their back line defense has really what made it. Kevin Durant has some great stretches on their wing. I think I think Roberson's been been really good on Kawhi. Obviously, it's it, it's not you know that 
he's not really providing much value otherwise, but he's he's been really good, I think, defending Kawhi Leonard in one-on-one situations. Um, and, and, you know, they've had a couple of guys, even like Deion Waiters, I think has been really good one-on-one against Kawhi Leonard, but the back line defense, especially Stephen Adams, has just been a beast. I mean, Adams, I think, struggled a little bit in game one with LaMarcus Aldridge because normally he's more comfortable around the paint. And I yeah. don't think that's thing. I don't think it's a skill set thing. I think he has a skill set to go up high and guard guys. I think it's just a, I think it's just a mentality thing. He's more comfortable around the paint right now. He's 22 years old. That's what he's done most. And I think it took him about a game to adjust it. And now he's, he's just coming out on guys, 15 feet from the rim. And he's, he's switching and he's, he's communicating on defense. And I think he's made just a huge impact. That's the experience. Yeah, what do you think? I mean, has it just been like an effort switch, or is there some schematic stuff they're doing uh, a little bit differently from game one? I know Steven Adams said something along the lines of we didn't try in game one uh, or something along those lines. I mean, is it really just that they're trying a lot harder, or is there something more that they're doing? Uh, I don't think it's necessarily fully an effort thing. I mean, look, schematically, like when Marcus Aldridge was hitting 75% of the shots in the first two games, Right. And the Thunder are guarding him the exact same way, and he's just cooled off. I mean, it's, it's basically been a facsimile of that 2014 series that he had against Houston, when Houston kind of let him go off mid-range in the first two games, and then he either regressed or got cold or fired himself out or however you want to phrase it, and uh, shot like 30, 39% or something like that the rest of the series. The same thing has kind of happened these past three games where Alter's still shooting a lot because Thunder are saying, you can take those off paint twos, it's okay. Uh but for the rest of the series, I think I think they're just more comfortable in what they're running defensively. I mean, like I was saying with Adams, Adams was was hanging back a lot more uh, during Game One, and, and wasn't really contesting Aldridge shots as well. Uh, now I think he's actually deterring some Aldridge shots, forced some shot clock violations in the series because of it. Actually, he's got the ball out of his hands, and forced him to get the ball up to Danny Green on the wing, which is you know obviously you'd rather have Danny Green with the ball to make a play than Marcus Aldridge at the elbow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just their execution, and, and maybe some of that stems from effort. I think some of it also stems from comfort. You know, normally, or often, the series go on, you see teams get more comfortable in their defenses and more, more with a greater understanding of what the opposition is going to run. They, they feel like they can anticipate that better. Uh, I think we've seen that a little bit more from the Spurs, too. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, just because it feels like the Spurs have this great infrastructure and ball movement of years past, and... I don't know if the Thunder thought they were getting that, but for whatever reason, in Game 1, that was the the Spurs that we saw. And I think it exposed some of the Thunder's kind of problems off the ball, just lack of concentration, lack of effort. And then I wonder if they kind of they cleaned that up in Game 2. And then I think as the series has gone on, they've sort of realized that, you know, the Spurs kind of don't play like the Spurs anymore. They don't have that, that whiplash movement. They're... You know, pardon the phrase, they're sort of an iso ball team now in a lot of ways. And so once you kind of clean up some of the little errors off the ball, it then just comes down to, you know, who's got more size, who's got the ability to contest shots more. And the Thunder are big, especially on the wing. And, I mean, to me, that's kind of the real story here is that the Thunder now realize that, like, if they just clean up the most basic of defensive mistakes, there's not much the Spurs intricately are doing that can exploit some of the more advanced stuff. Yeah, and I think something else that, that is worth mentioning, the Thunder were, were 12 defensive efficiency this year, mm-hmm. uh, but, but this is a this is a core that has historically been a top-head defense when it's been healthy. Uh, I think there were certainly effort issues, not 
throughout the entire regular season. But at the point throughout the regular season, you could look at it. There were some effort issues. And obviously, Serge Ibaka, who was their most important defender, had had a down year. And, and I didn't think was made much of an impact in Game 5 either. But there's no. not other ways to for it. I mean, but I think historically we've seen, with with a different coach, but historically we've seen that the, Spurs, or the Thunder defense is capable of playing at the, the levels of a top ten defense. They just didn't really do it during the regular season. And when they're, they're consistently locked in, they're consistently turned on, uh, and they're, they're they're growing comfort within their schemes and within their you know understanding each other. Uh, I think that in terms of into you know they're not going to be the best defense in the league, but they're obviously capable of playing a really a few really strong defensive games. Yeah, and they sort of have done a, a reverse or a something similar, but in a different way to what they did like four years ago, where you remember they sort of adjusted, they they stepped in the paint a little more to kind of. You know, it's trusting their ability to close out against that great Spurs ball movement of 2012. This year, they're almost doing the same thing, except it's for a different purpose. It's sort of instead to keep the plays in front of them. And suddenly now the Spurs just can't create an advantage. I mean, their entire offense is just shooting over the top of you. And now when you put Durant on Kawhi Leonard, there you can't shoot over the top of Kevin Durant. You put Steven Adams on LaMarcus Aldridge, that's hard to shoot over the top of, St- of Steven Adams. And I think that's the big key. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think the Spurs have also been, I mean, I know it's uh, not really just to, to levy any sort of, you know, I don't even know if it's criticism, but but levy any sort of potential criticism towards the Spurs, but they've, they've been a little weird in adjusting to the Thunder defense, haven't they? I mean, you know, yeah. in there, and they keep, they keep trying to post up Tanner, and I, I wrote about that the other day, and I think here come game five, when Tanner comes in the game, they're just going to go with, you know, a front court of Weston Aldridge who can pop 20 feet and can kill you when they're open. They're going to have Parker point guard, and they're just going to run spread pick and roll the whole time. And they tried that for a short stretch in game two, or in, uh, in game five, in the second quarter, and uh, it worked. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many points they got in that stretch, but it was open shot after open shot. And they were getting really good looks. And eventually, if you, you know, try that over a longer period of time and let everyone be cold, you have to imagine you're going to get some really good offense out of it. And uh, then they just kind of went back to not really running uh, that spread pick and roll in Kenner. And, and give some credit to Kenner because he made some uh, some plays that were not used to make. I mean, he, I think he was one for seven defending shots at the rim. Did a really nice play on a pick and roll with Tony Parker, kind of sticking with him as the ball handler and, and blocking his shot. I mean, he made some plays where he certainly got better in that aspect of the game. I'm just surprised as far as I haven't tried to exploit that forward. Yeah, they did for a little bit, but then I guess my response would be like, who are they consistently doing that with? I mean, they don't have they don't have the team where you can kind of have this quick guard that you set the screen what really high up on the floor and really space the floor to kind of make Canner defend in a lot of space. That's just not who they are anymore. I mean, that's the the they don't have that personnel. I don't think like can Kawhi Leonard do that? I don't think that's really his strength. I think he's more of a inside and kind of shoot over the top of you. And I don't think they had the shooting to spread the floor to make that to exploit them. So, you know, this leads me into my next the next thing I want to talk about, which you've written a lot about in your short time covering the team. This is Steven Adams and his cancer combination. This supersized combination that's not supposed to work in today's NBA, that doesn't include the supposed best defender in Ibaka, and it's just killing the Spurs. They have no answer. And it's it's so interesting to see how that is happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were they were plus six 
15 with that front court in game four, and then they were plus 15 with that front court in game five. I mean, they are they're crushing them. They when they went on that run, it, when Durant was just scoring like crazy, that was that was Kanter and Ibaka. And I think part of it is sometimes basketball is just the chemistry, right? I mean, those mm-hmm. guys seem to communicate well together off the defensive end, and Kanter is not. You know, he's not a defender, although I do think he's improved from where he was at last year when he could have argued he was the most detrimental defensive player who was getting playing time in the league. Oh, I, uh, and I totally I, agree. I did, did you see that block he had on Duncan? I mean, he that was yeah. like a multiple effort, like, athletic play. I mean, I was stunned to see that. Yeah, I mean, look, he plays hard on defense. That's never been the issue. It's not like he, he's one of those guys who just, who just gets trapped because he's, he's lazy and he's not going hard. He plays hard. He just is he's kind of slow footed because he's so so big, and he's just kind of he's not particularly quick footed, and uh, he gets caught in the wrong place. But but those are you know the getting caught in the wrong place thing. It's not like he's not a smart guy. I mean he can. Those are things you can improve on, and I think it's something that he's got better at this year, which is which has made him more playable. I know that's something that Zach Lowe has talked, has talked about a decent amount over at ESPN, but I think I think the communication between Adams is really really legitimate. I don't I don't know if that's because they're really close off the court or if it's just which they are or if it's just some way uh that you know sometimes you just get another guy on the court and it could have nothing to do with personality. Uh, but they seem to be doing better. They're also gobbling up every single rebound possible. Like the last two games they're they're rebounding over seventy percent of available rebounds when they're on the floor. Like I, that, that's an everything. absurd number. I mean that's crazy. I I forgot where I heard or read this. It might have been on Nate Duncan's podcast, but the Spurs, I think, only grabbed, what, two clean rebounds down the stretch against that lineup the entire time. And it's it's funny that that's what they're doing because they're they're zagging when the rest of the league is zigging, right? Offensive rebounding has been so undervalued around the league. But Sam Presti has always been the kind of person who values size, and he's put this team together that doesn't have a ton of small ball talent but is big and rebounds. And the Spurs were a great defensive rebounding team, and they still have no chance. And it it's sort of counterintuitive, but it's really worked out very well that they've kind of been able to do this. And, you know, maybe we should give Billy Donovan and Sam Presti some credit for that. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I think Billy Donovan is certainly still learning with his exit, though. Uh, I think he's still learning how to get comfortable with rotation that kind of stuff, because uh, he's basically changed up his rotation and his, and his go-to lineup, especially on the bench, throughout this entire series. And that's something where you can argue, you know, those really should have figured this stuff out in the regular season. I think that's a legitimate criticism of him. And, but I, I do think he's done some stuff well this time. So Tanner has gotten better on That's happened under Billy Donovan. He's become more playable. Uh, he's it's still a nice negative over there, but his offense is enough to where he's able to do what he's done the last few games. He's able to make a difference with the presence. You know, Russell Westbrook, I think, has become more of a facilitator this year, too. Uh, and that's under Donovan's watch also, uh, with the way that Russ just been able to become a, a really legitimate ball distributor and, and, and really improve as a, you know, as people like to call it, the true point guard way without losing his aggression, without losing his ability to score like Brady to those Russell Westbrook. Yeah, we should talk about Russ. It's sort of been an oversight on our part to wait 20-something minutes until we talk about him. It was an interesting game for him. For about two and a half quarters, it looked like 
they had Kawhi Leonard guarding Andre Roberson and then kind of helping on Russ, and Russ looked like he kind of didn't really know what to do. And then it's almost like a switch flipped at that, and you know, halfway through the third quarter, he suddenly realized what he needed, and he just came to life. And what I loved also about it was not only did he make such great plays when he didn't score, he had a couple great rebounds. He had this amazing rebound over David West and Coast to Coast. And then he was really locked in defensively, which does not happen all the time with Russell Westbrook. And I, as I tweeted a while back, and then maybe I oversold this play a little bit, I just I thought it was very out of character for Russ, you know, given what he how he loses concentration. And I was very excited about it. Maybe I overstated it, but just the way he defended that Kawhi Leonard back door at the last second play to cut it off. I mean, these are all things that we know Russ is a spectacular player, but these are all ways that he's sort of added some kind of nuance to his game, for lack of a better word. I know that's not that's sort of a pejorative word in some senses, but I just think that he had a, such a great all-around game after really struggling for a while. Yeah, I mean, look, I thought he played well in game four, uh, but his defense is, has been under the microscope this series, for sure. I mean, he's, he's been going over those Tony Parker ball screens and has been allowing a lot of mid-range shots because of it. His gambling hasn't really helped. And when he gambles, it's not just crap. Right? It's also when, you know, guy comes around to pick and he does that thing where he tries to lunge behind him and poke out the ball and, mm-hmm. and doesn't quite get it. And he ends up giving either a length to the basket or an open shot or a dump off or something like that. Or, you know, someone has to help and there's someone open on the three-point line. I mean, those sorts of things can, can be really detrimental for a defense. Uh, I thought he was a lot better at that in Game Five. And Russell Westbrook is is not. It's, it's like Henry. He's not. I mean, obviously, it's, it's a different style and a different degree. But it's not that he's not intelligent enough to do it. Those are just the sorts of things that he does. And sometimes effort can be questionable. So I think that kind of has to happen because they're so hard on offense that you can't just play the way he does for thirty six plus minutes every night and and not take some rest. But some end of the floor, uh, but but he was he was really good, like you said. But his his off ball rotations are something that isn't always on point. And I thought he was really good on that last night. And offensively, he was just unbelievable in that second half. His ability to get to the rim, but his ability to adjust the the coverages the Spurs were giving him, and that kind of brought back memories of Andrew Bogut guarding Tony Allen in the second round last year. Yeah. Do you think there was? I don't want to say a wake-up call. That's that's too harsh. But do you think – I was a little surprised by how candid he was after game three saying he shot too much. And, you know, normally he's just kind of going to play his game and he's going to stick to that. Do you think there was some sort of not, – not a revelation, but just an internal understanding that he had to sort of adjust his game a little bit from what he did in game three uh, to the rest of the series? I don't know. Um, that's a good question because he was he was really honest in that that presser after Game Three. He went ten for thirty one in that game, and Billy Donovan immediately came to his defense, talking about he did get the rim on the shot, although he did take a lot of you know, step back, pull up, and that kind of stuff. But I don't know. I guess it's possible. I guess it's possible that somebody said something to us, got through to him. I mean, I also think it's possible that Game Three was just an aberration. He played badly. Everybody can have an off night, off night mentally or physically. And uh, the last two games, he just you know he didn't shoot very well in Game Four. I thought he played very well in Game Four. I don't think you always need to have a good shooting line in order to make an impact and play well. And I think Russell's Game Game Four was certainly one of those games. Uh, you know, I, I think it's also just this is one of the six or seven best players in the NBA. 
and eventually he's going to play like one of the six or seven best players in the NBA. That's just what Russ Westbrook does. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I also think, and I'll lump myself into this category a little bit, there is sort of a, a tendency to sort of focus on some of the things that, that Russ doesn't do well without remembering that the Spurs are just terrified of him on the fast break. The Spurs are really scared. He gets in the lane on just very, very, very tight coverages. He breaks a lot of what San Antonio's defensive principles are based on because, you know, they, they yield space to try to pack the paint. But this is a guy that can just kind of take that little bit of space and just zoom through a hole. I mean, in a lot of ways, he's so terrifying just being himself. And, you know, he's going to have a couple nights where he shoots a little too much. And he's going to have a couple nights where he struggles to shoot in general. But when you add up just kind of the, the positives he brings, it is, there is a tendency to forget all that, I think. Uh, and I, I know I do that myself. Yeah, I mean, I think Russ, Russ seems so comfortable with himself, you know? I think he always has. He's always given off that impression, at least publicly, that he's so comfortable in his own skin. I don't think he's he's too worried about changing. You know, maybe maybe making slight adjustments to help the team because he's, he's very clearly and very obviously an outrageously competitive guy, and that's what outrageously competitive people do. Uh, but... I don't think he feels like he needs to change, nor do I think he should feel that way. I mean, he is spectacular when he's going. And he was, in that second half last night, absolutely unbelievable. That was an amazing watch. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point for all of us to remember. I mean, I think it's a good point for me to remember. Um, so what happens now? Okay, so game six, it's back in Oklahoma City's home floor. I, I got this vibe that I just felt like the Spurs are kind of defeated at this point. They just don't have any easy ways to score. But, you know, it's really dangerous to count the Spurs. I mean, what kind of adjustments do you could you see in Game 6? I do. I know I know you mentioned that you don't think the Spurs uh, quite have the personnel they used to to, to run that, to run more, kind of more spread sets. But I do think if Donovan goes to that, I know I said this before Game 5 too, but I do think if Donovan goes to that that big lineup with Tanner and Adams, they're they're going to have to do that. I think you can run out a lineup of Parker, Green, Kawhi, uh, Aldridge, and West, and you can have you can even run like those four sets that the Clippers run, where where both both pigs come up and set the screens. Yeah, and you can really have Tanner's communication skills. Because those are hard to guard if they're not communicating well, right? Because one guy has to go with another big, and there's a lot of switching. It's not just switching onto the guard. You also sometimes have to switch onto the other big, depending on who pops and who rolls. And when it's Aldridge and West, you don't know who's popping and who's rolling because they're both equally capable with those scenarios. So you might have to switch, and that's where they can get discombobulated. That's where maybe the Thunder end up helping for the wings more, and you end up finding shooters where you can get Tanner farther from the basket because you don't know which way his camp's going to go. Uh... And I think that's something where where maybe you see the Spurs go a little bit, a little bit more. That the Thunder have run that set a little bit in the series. Uh, I think it's possible that that you see the Spurs run stuff, maybe not that exact play, but stuff with those sorts of concepts in order to take advantage of, of a lineup built in the last couple of years. Yeah, that's a good point. You're talking about the double high play uh, that the Clippers yep. ran. Uh, you know, you, you just kind of send. It's the pick gets set like thirty feet from the basket. You've got both big guys sort of sending this jumbo screen. That's a really interesting thought, and I think that might work. The concern I would have though is again on the other end, how does how does Lamarcus Aldridge and David West, how does that combination box out 
a Steven Adams and his Cantor combination, even a Steven Adams Serge Ibaka combination. I mean, that's the concern I'd have. There's a trade off to playing that lineup. Oh yeah, no question. I mean, you you might be able to you might give up some re- some some rebounds. There's no question. But I mean, I guess my logic in defending that would be they're already filling you on the board. At least try to see if you can get back some points on the other end. And if it doesn't work, it's not like you have to stick with it. Uh, but but if they're already you know. They're already grabbing seventy percent of rebounds or whatever it is. It's actually more than them uh, over crazy. the last game that those guys are in. It's insane. They, 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 they took up seventy. Their offensive rebound rate with uh, with uh, Adams and Kenner on the floor in Game Five was sixty two percent. That's offensive rebounds. That is uh, insane. That's yeah. Uh, to to uh, give some so, context, it's usually if you get thirty percent, that is really really good. I think that would have led the league if you got thirty percent. And this is twice that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and obviously, you know, we're talking about one game sample size lineups that they're playing only a third or maybe maybe a little less than half the game. Uh, but, but, I mean, that's something. I mean, these are, these are monstrous numbers. That can, whether you're looking at the eye test or you're looking at the numbers, I mean, they all tell the story. So if they're going to grab every available rebound, I mean, look, David West is a physical guy. Uh, I think it's, you know, David West, I don't worry about his physicality against those guys. Maybe maybe strength, but David West is a strong guy, too, and he's kept that old man strength on top of him. Uh, I, I also think in a similar way to, I always saw LaMarcus Aldridge shooting in an unrealistic case at the beginning of the, of the series, you know, I think this is kind of too good to be true in a way, too. I mean, look, they can kill him on the board, but I don't think that over a larger sample size, and, you know, you only have two games left, or lucky, maybe only one. But over a larger sample size, I just don't think this lineup is capable of grabbing this many rebounds because I don't think any lineup is. At some point, it comes back to earth. Maybe that doesn't happen in the series, but if you're going to play the percentages, I think you're best off just trying to make it so Billy Donovan, who has been very quick to adjust, you could argue that's a positive or a negative, you think he's too quick. Uh, if, if you can start killing that lineup quickly, maybe Donovan just doesn't go back to it anymore. And all of a sudden, you have a lineup that's been killing you. Completely opposite. Yeah, it's a good point. It's true. It's just like shooting. Some anything that's sort of a statistical outlier may not sustain. What do you think matchup wise the Spurs are gonna do with Russell and, and Durant? Do you think they're gonna try to again use Kawhi in the ro- the rover, the Romer role? Or do you think it's gonna be more traditional matchups? Uh you know, I think your guess might be as good as mine on that one. I I don't know. I thought from the end of the series that Danny Green was going to be guarding Russ and Kawhi would be guarding Durant, and then he came out in game one with, with Kawhi guarding Russ. Um, so, so I'm not I'm not quite sure what the Spurs are going to go with. I like Kawhi guarding guarding Roberson. I mean, it doesn't look like uh, it doesn't look like Billy is gonna is gonna pull him from the game. Uh, yeah. So if you can just use Kawhi as as a free safety. He's such a good defender, and he was so unbelievable guarding passing lane in that game yesterday. I mean, I, I thought he played even Mike Kawhi Leonard's stand was just an unbelievable defensive game yesterday. Uh, yeah. And, and if you can have him guard those passing lanes, if you can basically, I mean, you're taking away a corner if you're not guarding Roberson, right? Because Russ doesn't always pass it out to him when he's open. And uh, Roberson is, is, I mean, we've seen him bank in quarter three. He's not a reliable shooter. Value comes up the end of the ball. So you're still basically taking away a corner, rendering a corner off the shooter way. So 
I, I like I like using him as that free safety, but I I'd be lying if I told you I I had a realistic guess on what. <laughs> do you have a Do you have a sense of what the Thunder would prefer? Is it Would they prefer more traditional matchups, or would they prefer? The Romer, uh, would they prefer Russ on on Durant or, or not? Uh, sorry, Kawhi on Durant, uh, Kawhi on Russ. Do you have a sense of what would be a more easy easily handled by the Thunder? I think that Russ. That's a good way of asking. Now that I think about it, I think Russ would would prefer Kawhi as the Rover. I think mm-hmm. Russ loves being able to get that first step because once he gets his first step, is what it really. I mean, he's got as quick of a first step as anybody, and he's so, so fast that once he gets going, he loves just barreling straight to the rim, and I think that's when he's he's feeling the most effective, whether whether that's the case or not. That's the scenario, and with Tony Parker on him, I mean, he's so much quicker and more powerful than Parker. He can blow by him, and if you're green on Durant and, and Kawhi playing the free safety, then I think that allows Russ to get that first step. So I, I think he probably prefers that if we can see for him. Yeah, I agree with you, and that's that's the reason I'd be a little worried about getting too cute here, just because, you know, even if Kawhi is literally sitting in Russ's lap and just totally ignoring Robert Roberson, he's not going to be fully double teaming him because then that would just create a ball. You could kind of pick apart that with ball movement, even if you're helping off Robertson. If he knows you're literally going to be trapping the double team, he can cut. What he's going to probably do is sort of roam and stand sort of in the way, but there is almost no in the way with Russ. He can squeeze through any hole. So I agree with you, and I think the Spurs should just kind of – I would lean towards traditional matchups here. Don't let Russ get that first step. Because you're not going to stop him once he gets that. All right, so that will just about do it. Last thing, do you have? Are you going to? Are you comfortable giving a prediction, or would you rather not? You know, I picked Spurs in seven before the series. That's but right, I you did. Was, yeah, I, I thought it would be three two going back to Oklahoma City. Uh, I, I'm torn between picking what I really believe, given the current circumstances, and not sounding like. I hypocrite hedging my bet if the Spurs actually do come back and win at seven. I, I, I'm feeling Thunder is six now because how can you not pick the team that's won two straight going home and has a three two lead? But then, then if I pick Thunder in six and the Spurs win at seven, then, then what do I do? So that's that's my answer. You can decide whether my <laughs> perspective is, is Spurs in seven or, or Thunder in six. I, I like it. I like you playing both sides of the fence there. I think. Yeah, that way you get criticized by both people. Um, but anyway, yeah, thanks for taking the time. This is Fred Katz from the uh, from the Norman transcript. Fred, as you have seen throughout this interview, has been talking to someone else and not himself, so that's a positive step. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hang in there. Uh, do not worry about the internet memes, and enjoy the rest of this series. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, and that is the Limited Upside Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Limited underscore Upside. Please subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review uh, because, you know, we don't want to be talking to nobody. As I'm just kidding. I'm going to stop with these jokes, I promise. Uh, we don't want to be talking to nobody. Uh, it's, it's great to hear from you. So leave us a review. Be kind. And until next time, that's the Limited Upside Podcast.